Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part two of week three, titled Sermons. Recorded in February 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Let's go to the next stage, C. C and C prime. Verse 29, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. If anyone uh, takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, don't ask for them again. Several behaviors, injunctions that Jesus gives... Now, it's, it's, notice that the, there's not a lot of context here. Why, why would someone be striking you? Why would someone be taking away your coat? Uh, begging, well, that has a context because someone lacks something that they need, so they beg for it. Uh, someone taking away your goods? Theft, perhaps, but why do people steal? Maybe because they want to get rich or maybe because they have no resources of their own. Maybe they are among the poor who are the blessed. It's unclear. And it doesn't matter. See, when we start to, if we just take this teaching by itself and we say, well, why do we do this? How do we know uh, if, if people are really deserve for us to give them the money they need to buy a piece of bread or whatever? Um, look at the contrasting teaching in verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. So if I'm walking down the street in downtown Canton, someone on the street asks me for some money, and he looks like the kind of guy who's probably going to go around to the liquor store and buy some alcohol, and I choose not to give him money, I'm making a judgment call. Jesus says don't make judgment calls, because when you make them, you're not acting like God. Don't, don't Don't make distinctions among people. When people are in need, respond to them, because... That way you won't be judged. You won't be condemned. So again, there's a statement about what you're supposed to do and then why you're supposed to do it because it's related to what God is like. Let's finish this up with B. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Well, that's exactly the stuff that he was talking about in the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are you when people do these things to you for my, uh, in, because of the Son of Man, because of me. If you behave like me, you'll be treated like me, a prophet. So he says, your duty as a prophet is to respond with love, with doing good, with blessing, with praying for those. Why? Well, again, the answer is in the corresponding statement. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Again, because you're mirroring what God is like. And then this sort of this bookend, A and A prime here, verse, verses 27 and then the end of verse 38. Uh, it's just a way of reiterating the principle that is operative throughout here. The measure you give will be the measure you get back from God. So the, the contrast here is in how you image God to the world. If you image God as being judgmental, you deserve this, you don't, Guess who's going to judge you? God. 
because you're not imaging what God is truly like. You're distorting what God is like through your actions. So if this is the message, it's very clear that it fits with Luke's understanding of Jesus as a prophet, which began at the beginning with the birth story, even before his birth, with all the prophetic messages of the Magnificat and the Benedictus, all these songs that are being sung, which are prophetic songs. And then Jesus is commissioning as a prophet. Now he teaches us how to share in his prophetic mission. Very clear, very focused. Now we go to Matthew, to the Sermon on the Mount, much bigger. So I have a little outline of the sermon. That was the third handout I got. Adapted from another scholar, but some of it's my own language here. And uh, it's much longer, so we have to see how it's arranged. It begins again with the Beatitudes, just like Luke's sermon has. Uh, And it is longer, there's more in there. And guess what's right at the center? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke said, or in Luke, Jesus said, blessed are those who are hungry now. Matthew expands that to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. That, of course, will become the central value, the central virtue of the sermon. So some of these additions or some of these expansions, these uh, bringing of other sayings of Jesus into the mix uh, serves what's going to happen later in the sermon. Notice if you also, if you look at the outline I have, what do you notice about the first and last Beatitudes, according to Matthew? What, what, what do they share in common? They share a statement, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, for their, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a snapshot. It's a description of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. What sort of people participate in it, actualize it? What sort of people make it visible? So you have this frame, and then every other verb that goes with these Beatitudes is a future tense. So notice the the, the bookends of these Beatitudes are in the present tense. It is, theirs is the kingdom. But all these other ones, they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God. So the kingdom is both a now and a not yet, as always, right? It's, it's, it's referring to something Jesus is beginning here and now in his own time, but it also has a future dimension. It's in progress. It's in process. The kingdom of God is a process which has not yet been completed. Very important for Matthew's view of things. And that simply underscores that the kingdom of God isn't finished with Jesus. It's not fully present yet. It's fully present in him, but it's not fully present in the world. Just read the newspapers, right? So this is an unfinished business. We often say, quite rightly, uh, in virtually, I think every version of Christianity says this, that, uh, that Jesus is the fullness of salvation, that the kingdom is fully present in him, that, that everything, that salvation is complete with Jesus. Uh, yes, it is, but what does his mission consist of? What is he attempting to achieve? Well, yes, he brings about forgiveness of sins, but why? Not just to be nice, to empower human beings to finish the job, 
to empower human beings to participate in his mission, in his vocation, which is the church, right? And so this now and not yet in the Beatitudes highlights that feature, which is going to come up at the end of Matthew's story, by the way. Matthew's story ends with the commissioning of the followers of the disciples now to bring this to completion in history. But we'll get to that in a minute. So it begins with the, with the snapshot of the kingdom. Then comes the commission. Christ commands his followers to become salt of the earth, light to the world. Not quite sure what he meant by salt of the earth. I'm going to focus on the light of the world part. The function of light in the, uh, in the simile that he gives is light makes things visible. People can see things when there's light. And what is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the good deeds performed by his followers. When his followers perform the right actions, it will enlighten people as to what the kingdom looks like. You can't understand the kingdom if you have nothing to see. The good deeds show what the kingdom looks like. By performing these actions, we participate in the people who are listed in the Beatitude in their experience, and we make God's kingdom visible to the world, and then, as a result of that, the world is encouraged and desirous of becoming part of it too. So it's a politics of conversion, if you will. So having commissioned us, his disciples, he then says, well, how do you know whether your actions are good? How do you know whether your deeds are fitting and righteous? Well, here we have the famous statement in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, where Jesus says, well, the, the criterion by which God will judge your actions are the Torah and the prophets, right? I've come to fulfill them. Your role is to do them and teach them to others. And whoever doesn't is least in the kingdom. In fact, he then goes on to say, if you would enter the kingdom, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So that then becomes the criterion for following Jesus. This is also a prophetic vocation in Matthew, but Matthew emphasizes Jesus the King, the Messiah, the royal Messiah. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus commands his followers, the risen Jesus, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So I've just been fully, I've fully entered into the role of ruler, of king, of Messiah. I now command you to go and teach everyone else to do what I commanded them. So the images of the content is of the message of the prophet that we have in Luke, but the, the scenario is that of the king commanding his followers to make other followers, to do his bidding, to do his commandments. But those commandments are nothing less than the fulfillment of the Torah and the prophets. So here we have Jesus as Moses there too. So having then given, explained what the criterion is, he then gives examples of what that would mean in, con in concrete practice. So he quotes the Torah on six occasions, and he gives, he gives his, his disciples the means, the understanding of how to fulfill those commands. So we have don't murder, Jesus says don't hate, don't commit adultery, don't 
have lustful thoughts. Kind of hard, right? But uh, what he's doing is what the rabbis would call building a fence around the Torah. You prohibit the actions that lead to the sins that the Torah condemns so that you won't sin. The Torah permits divorce. Jesus says, but that's not God's intention. Permitting something to happen is not the same thing as willing it to happen. So to fulfill God's intention, don't divorce, don't remarry. Um, The Torah permits you to swear oaths, but if you break an oath, you've sinned. So don't don't swear oaths at all, he says. Don't get into the position where you could fail to fulfill it. And then at the end of these sequence of six examples, you have the principle of non-retaliation, the principle of love of enemies, just like from Luke, except that it ends with a different punchline. It contains the principle of mercy, to be sure, but the emphasis is on perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the criterion. If you're not perfect as God is perfect, you will not enter the kingdom. My students have a hard time with this. They said, well, surely Jesus doesn't mean we have to be perfect. He just means we have to try. Sorry, that's not what he says, folks. He says you must be perfect as God is perfect. Now, we have to parse what he means by perfect, obviously. But if we don't believe that we can be perfect or become perfect, then we're all in trouble because we can't enter the kingdom. We can't be participants in Jesus's vocation. At least that's Matthew's version. Luke is a bit more easy. (laughs) But uh, what does it mean to be perfect? Well, notice that that command, that punchline to be perfect as God is perfect, is put right after the, the command to love one's enemies. And it says, just as God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, he makes no distinction. His, his mercy, you know, going to the theme mercy, overflows and comes for everyone without judgment, without distinction. Uh, unconditional love, as Brother Francis Bluen often put it. Unconditional love. Um, that's what perfection means. Well, that's something that perhaps human beings are capable of, we would hope. Um, but there's also a, a background in, in, the, in the, the language that we need to figure out. Now, of course, this is written in Greek, even though Jesus didn't speak in Greek, but it's written in Greek, and the Greek word is teleos. Uh, and teleos, which is translated into Latin as perfectus, which is where we get the word perfect, uh, we probably have a skewed notion of perfection. Um, we're only human, we can't be perfect, we would say. Well, that's not what, how the word is used in Latin or in Greek. Perfectus means complete, whole, even well, in the sense of having well-being. Having integrity, even, is one of the ways in which it is used in the Bible. It's Hebrew equivalent tamim, or tam, can mean to have integrity, uh, all of these shades of meaning, complete, whole, integrity, well, probably ha- play a role in Jesus' notion of perfection here. Because, of course, what's he going to do in the very next section of the sermon? He's going to define the opposite of perfection, which is hypocrisy. He's going to say when you do your actions to, uh, in front of everybody, he says, watch out lest you do it for your own benefit, lest you do it for hypocritical reasons. So this idea of perfection may have something to do with the contrast with hypocrisy. It may have something to do, uh, certainly has something to do with this notion of of unconditional love for everybody, especially your enemies. Um, 
And, uh, and all of this then is wrapped together with this command to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. He later will use the golden rule, which Luke also uses in his sermon. And Matthew adds, this is the Torah and the prophets, the golden rule. Not as an abstract idea, but as, as an idea, as a principle, which is, which is made concrete by the various specific teachings that Jesus gives in this sermon. And then the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount ends, I'm really skipping over stuff here, it ends with, again, a series of warnings, and I'd like to repeat one of the warnings, a very important thing for understanding the overall message. The warning is in chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, not all those who, call, who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. In other words, acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah is not enough. which is something a lot of Christians today don't want to hear. There are whole Christian theologies based around the days that is it all you need is Jesus, you know? But that's not what Jesus says here. Not all who call me Lord, Lord, will enter. Only those who do the will of my Father. And uh, he says, on that day, and by that day he means the day of judgment, the day when God will evaluate every human action on that day, these people who, who weren't, who were just calling me Lord, Lord, and who weren't doing what I told them to do in the sermon, they will come forward and say, uh, look at all the wonderful, wonderful things we've done for you in your name. Jesus will say, get away, I don't know you, evildoers. Now, why is that language significant? Well, to know why it's significant, we have to go to Matthew 25 which is near the end of the gospel, here's where Jesus gives an expanded narrative of what the last judgment looks like, what it will look like. And um, I didn't give you a handout, but I'll just read a couple of representative uh, sentences from it that will uh, allow us to notice the connection between this description of judgment and the, last, and, and the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, I'm looking at verse 31, and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. So again, the Messiah taking, assuming his role as king, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, guess what that is? That's the Beatitudes. He's echoing the very language with which the sermon begins. Blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So in other words, the last judgment scene is of a peace with the Beatitudes. It confirms what the Beatitudes is describing they're describing this, how God will judge and what basis God will judge people. And, of course, we probably know how this goes, right? They say, well, uh, why, are we, why are we blessed? Well, because you, uh, you gave me food when I was hungry. You gave me shelter when I had no shelter. You came to me in prison and, and, and stayed with me. You did all these things to me. And, of course, they said, when did we see you? So whenever you did this to anyone, you did it to me. And of course, then we have the opposite, the people who didn't do those things. So notice religion has nothing to do with how God judges people here. It's purely on the basis of whether people 
adhere to uh, what the kingdom of heaven looks like, according to the sermon. Um, and although Matthew loses, uses the term perfection rather than mercy, these are probably really two ways of saying the same thing. To be perfect is to be merciful to all, without, with integrity, without making distinctions, because you're imaging God's love to the world. And likewise for Luke. This is the judgment, says Matthew, says Matthew's Jesus. Uh, and then, of course, we have the end of the gospel, which we already mentioned, but let's reiterate. At the end of the gospel, in chapter 28 of Matthew, where are they? They're on a mountain in Galilee. Well, how many mountains are there in Galilee where Jesus was? Well, there was one where he gave three chapters of teachings. This is probably to, uh, to be understood to be the mountain on which the Sermon on the Mount was given. They're on the mountain. Jesus then, having given them earlier uh, their commission, now sends them out to do what he did. To do what he did to make, as he made them disciples, so they are to go and make disciples. As he commanded them, they are to teach others and uh, to do what he commands. It's all of a piece. It fits together very nicely. So we we can now step back for a moment and think about how the birth story, the baptism story, and the Sermon on the Mount, and now the end of Matthew's Gospel all relate, right? You have the birth story foregrounding in various ways the key virtue of righteousness, the key criterion of God's judgment, exemplifies this virtue by, in positive and negative ways by the characters, also anticipates Jesus' fulfilling of the prophets through his life, but then Uh, includes to fulfill the prophets is something we all are called to do, right, by the golden rule as Jesus defines it. Then we have uh, his, the announcement of of his uh, public ministry, which is then prefaced by this sermon, which will dictate the meaning of everything that he does in that ministry. So everything that he does is not just him doing it, it's him teaching us how to image God to the world. That's Matthew. And it's Luke too, except that Luke doesn't have um, uh, the the same, uh, he doesn't weight things in the same places as Matthew does. Luke prefers to illustrate the principle of mercy in in, in this quick version of the sermon on the plain. He chooses to illustrate it in the center of his gospel, namely uh, the journey that Jesus will undertake to Jerusalem. Now in Mark, where Luke and Matthew get the journey from, the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem takes three chapters in Mark. It's pretty quick. And actually, almost all that Jesus says in Mark is in those three chapters. Uh, Luke blows this three-chapter narrative up into a ten-chapter marathon, where the journey is really just a frame for hanging a lot of teachings and stories and parables. Uh, it's a, At the end of each chapter, you get another indication of, well, we've traveled a little further now. We've gotten a little further now. But the whole of these 10 chapters in Luke is where you get the parables, the unique Luke and parables that all illustrate this principle of mercy. So again, Luke's arrangement of things is of a piece too. You have the prophetic message anticipated in the birth stories. You have the prophetic commissioning of Jesus at his baptism. You have the prophetic definition of what the good news is in the Sermon on the Plain, and then we will see that exemplified in the parables as we move on next week. So I think I'm going to stop there, having pictured this for us for both Luke and Matthew, 
Let's field some questions or comments or, or reactions or reflections. Is this challenging to us today? How does it challenge us today? Maybe put it that way. The teaching's nothing new, but have we heard it? How do we implement it in our lives? Yes, brother. Yeah, so, so the question is, how do we, how do we understand the, that portion of the Lord's Prayer where it says, Thy kingdom come? Uh, it's pretty clear uh, if one understands the, the, the wording of the Lord's Prayer that thy kingdom come is the same as thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Words, these are parallel descriptions of the same reality. So may your kingdom come, may your rule, may your rule, your sovereignty over human life be effective. That is say, may your will be fully, perfectly obeyed on earth as it is perfectly obeyed in heaven. Uh, so that's very much, the language of that is very much of a piece, again, with Jesus' own very um, uh, striking statements about perfection and all that. Um, but, but does it also mean then, could it also mean that we are making ourselves, um, we are opening ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit to help us to, uh, to endure whatever we endure, to accomplish whatever we are set to accomplish? Um, Again, in Matthew, there's not a developed notion of what the Spirit does, except to announce who Jesus is. So um, Matthew really, the, the Gospel of Matthew can't really answer that question, I think. I think the question really would have to do with, again, relating the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, to other Christian, early Christian texts, such as Paul, who do develop this question of, how does the Holy Spirit help us in suffering? How does the Holy Spirit help us to make effective God's will? Um, so yes, it's a both and, I think. It's, it's both um, your will be done. Uh, that it's, it's, pr- it's praying that, that the process of the kingdom will be accomplished, but in praying for it, it throws the responsibility back on us to a degree because the whole point is that we are called to participate in the process. But we can only participate if we allow God to work through us, if we allow God to empower us. God is great in creating things, and he's great at performing miracles, but he's not a magician. He cannot force us to do something that we're not willing to do. The only way God can perfect our fallen nature is if we allow him to, (laughs) if we allow him to. And that's what we understand by allowing the Holy Spirit to Uh, to work through us, to guide us, to empower us, to strengthen us, all those things the Holy Spirit does. Uh, I thank you for coming, and I hope to see you all next week. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.